Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Brenna Miller. And I'm your other host, Jessica Venus Nelson. On a recent trip to the UK, President Trump bemoaned that, quote, allowing the immigration to take place in Europe is a shame. I think it changed the fabric of Europe. And unless you act very quickly, it is never going to be what it was. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I think you are losing your culture. The conclusion that immigration changes existing culture for the worse is a common view among white nationalists in the U.S., and existential fears of losing what is seen as Western civilization have animated many within what is considered the alt-right. However, the valorization of Western civilization is often rooted in romanticized notions of ancient Greece and Rome, which alt-right groups have appropriated and promoted in recent propaganda. Why and how do nationalists in Europe and the U.S. draw connections to ancient Greece and Rome? What are the consequences of this for our understandings of the ancient era? And what should scholars in the classics and history do about it? Today, we've invited three scholars to discuss the alt-right's appropriation of classical history. On the phone, we have Denise McCoskey, a professor of classics and affiliate of Black World Studies at Miami University in Ohio. She's the author of Race, Antiquity and Its Legacy, and most recently, an article for Origins entitled Beware of Greeks Bearing Gifts, How Neo-Nazis and Ancient Greeks Met in Charlottesville. Hello, thanks for the invitation. Also on the phone, we have Donna Zuckerberg, the editor-in-chief of Eidolon, an online publication for informational classical scholarship and author of soon-to-be-published book from Harvard University Press, Not All Dead White Men, Classics and Misogyny in the Digital Age. Thank you for having me. And from Vassar College's recording studio, we have Curtis Dozier, a visiting professor at Vassar and the director of Pharos, doing justice to the classics, a site devoted to documenting and responding to appropriations of ancient Greece and Rome by hate groups. He is also the producer and host of The Mirror of Antiquity, a podcast about classical scholars and how their research intersects with the contemporary world. Hi. So to begin, how has the classical period been appropriated into white supremacist narratives of history? I think the best way to sum up what they say is that the classical world provides either a positive or a negative model for us. So they notice that Plato seems to recommend eugenics in the Republic, and so they say we should have eugenics. They notice that in classical antiquity, women had fewer rights than men. So they say we should imitate that. On the negative side, they look especially at the end of the Roman Empire, and they say that Rome fell because of immigration, and sometimes they also say because of the decline of morality. And so they say we should be worried about that because immigration leads to collapse of society. You know, sometimes things can be both positive and negative. So I've been working on a page right now saying that classical Greece was founded by basically Nordic invaders. So they say these sort of Aryan white people made Greece great. But then they also make that a negative model because they say, well, and then classical Greece declined because of race mixing. So if I could just add to that, you know, and and let me just give props to Curtis. He's uh, in charge of a website now that's been tracking a really wide range of appropriations. But I think 
what's the sort of immediacy of this issue is some of the intersections with what the alt-right wants from classics and, and what we might call contemporary identity politics. So they are very revitalized, not just around the idea of a Western culture, but about a purity of race and appropriating the ancient Greeks and Romans as some kind of paradigmatic white race or the, the foundation of the greatness. So they adopt slogans about, you know, that sort of mirror other contemporary slogans about making things great again. And so I think that's really the moment. I mean, Donna's done some great work on ways that they're appropriating ideas or constructing ideas of gender through antiquity and also recently some very uh, important comments about homosexuality. So I think that's really the immediacy right now. They've started to use the ancient world to fight back against, again, for lack of a better word, what they might perceive as identity politics. Yeah, I would just add to that part of the ideology that gives them legitimacy, or in their own eyes, that is, is the idea that the contributions made by essentially white people or you know, Western civilization, if you want to see that up, uh, have been greater mm -hmm. contributions to society than those given by anybody else. So they like to gesture toward ancient Greece and Rome as sort of this originary moment for Western civilization and the achievements of mostly Athens and Rome in areas of art, monuments, literature, all those things then become proof for them of the gifts that white people have given society. I've seen on a neo-Nazi message board a list of the accomplishments of the white race, a very long list. And a literal list. Wow. <laughs> all the things at the beginning are, quote unquote, discoveries of ancient Greeks. That's where it starts, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything before that for them. So we can see how they're using ancient history to justify their perspectives today. Um, so as scholars, do you see anything wrong with the alt-right's use of classic history? How might they be misusing it? And is it even fair to call what they do history? That's such a complicated question. <laughs> I mean, it's part of what makes it wrong is just that they're using it to promote racism and sexism. A big part of it, whether or not you think you're that it's wrong is going to largely depend on sort of where you stand politically. With that said, yes, often their version of history is extremely lacking in nuance and complexity, or sometimes even flat out wrong. It's really important to say that it takes a very narrow lens and a very an extreme act of um, boundary building to try to cut the Greeks and the Romans off from the rest of the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, there's no question that they are deeply linked to all sorts of cultures in those areas. That Greek culture doesn't just, you know, emerge out of Athena's head, but it's something that's growing and building. And so I think speaking personally, it's sort of shocking to come back to this model at this particular moment, because I think classicists in the past 20 years have been really trying to figure out a way to understand this world of the ancient Mediterranean. And so to come back to this focus on these sites as if they are disconnected from all that, I think is um, extremely distorted. There's a little bit of a difference I've seen between how white supremacists use classics and how anti-feminists use classics, because to a certain extent, when you're looking at anti-feminist appropriation of classical material, often they are seeing something that, to a, an extent, is there in the text. 
there is misogyny in the text and they're making it the most prominent feature of the text and also using it as an aspirational model. The white supremacist material, you don't see that as much because their readings of anything involving race and antiquity are so tendentious and reductive and often just incorrect. I feel like in a, to some extent, there is a kind of germ of accuracy in some of the white supremacist stuff. Maybe not about their understanding of race, which I agree is very reductive and anachronistic in a lot of ways. But I made the point earlier about eugenics. It is true that Plato seems to advocate eugenics in the Republic. So to the extent that they want to use antiquity as a model, which I think both the anti-feminists and the white supremacists do in many ways, they tend to be more cherry-picked or tendentiously interpreted, but not completely wrong. This thing I'm we're working on right now, and Denise has contributed to it, uh, and actually you have too, Donna, is about the claim of this Dorian invasion that brought Nordic people to Greece. There is this myth that the ancient Greeks had of the return of the children of Heracles, who went into exile and then came back and established themselves as the ruling culture. And you know what the white supremacists have done is turned that into a totalizing narrative that explains everything about Greek culture when it actually, from our point of view, seems to be a story that was very implicated in the politics of the time, Sparta's own attempt to claim a mythological history of Heracles for themselves. And actually, Athens has a political angle in it too. But but that myth is there. And so they pick up on that and then turn it into something that means what they want it to mean. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the mistake is to try to portray the ancient world as some sort of model of multiculturalism. You know, I think that there's no question it's a multicultural world, but there's also, as, as Curtis and Tan are suggesting, you know, deep-seated philosophies of inequality and domination. And I think where the alt-right is, I think, very misleading is their attempt to join the Greeks and Romans. And certainly for the Romans, for example, um, the Germans are to them as racially different as Ethiopians are. Um, so this idea that they can kind of cling on to the most powerful people at the time of the ancient Mediterranean is a real distortion of how the ancient Greeks and Romans saw the world and, and constructed their own ideas about race. But it, this is not to say that they were somehow enlightened people when it came to exerting ideas of difference and playing those out in things like empire and slavery. So is that the idea then to try to make them seem more respectable, more appropriate by clinging to this idea of this ancient lineage? What does their appropriation of this history do? What are its real ramifications? I mean, I think the ancient Greeks and Romans have a tremendous amount of cultural power in today's world. And so to wrap themselves up in it and to create an invented genealogy that's become not just cultural, but now racialized, I think is um, speaks to a lot of their attempt to regain some kind of power today. I mean, I think, you know, Curtis was talking before about the the myth of the children of Heracles. I think myths and stories and the ways that they get mobilized are extremely important in the current moment. And it's it, for quite a long time, it's been very powerful to mobilize yourself as the legitimate heir of the Greeks and Romans. Um, that's a little bit what I tried to write about. Um, things like, how do the British get the Elgin marbles? Um, well, they do it by creating an ideology in which they are 
better inheritors of ancient Greece than the modern Greeks themselves. And so I think the alt-right, you know, is very clever in the narratives that they're choosing. And I think we underestimate their power at our peril. It's also, I think, a real setback in some ways for classics as a discipline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because as Denise was saying before, we'd like to think that classics as a discipline is now in this place where we're thinking about the ancient Mediterranean world in a much more inclusive and, and holistic way. And also we're trying to make strides within the discipline toward greater inclusion and diversity. Uh, but it's a rocky road and anything that has a wide cultural spread that reinforces the idea that classics are about how great white people are is going to trickle down to classics as a discipline and 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 set us back in a direction that we don't want to go in. How deep would you assess the alt-right's knowledge of classics as a discipline? Well, I think some of the ideas they're getting from earlier classical scholarship, that's what I think is, is sort of so frustrating at this particular moment because classics has really moved on yeah, this is a reinvigoration of ideas that many, not all only, but many ideas that classicists themselves were promoting at the end of the 19th century and throughout the early part of the 20th century. So I think that's part of the role that, you know, what makes it so pressing for classicists themselves to get involved and to really speak against some of this, because some of this they've um, sown the seeds for. That's that's one reason Denise's article for Origins and you know a lot of the work she's doing in other ways too is so valuable is because it it shows the long history of classical history's implication in these politically regressive ideologies. In places like Reed, you have these movements against sort of the Western canon and and teaching classics and and part of the concern that the students have is that the study of these texts reinscribes white supremacy. Now. I don't by any means think that that must be the case, but what the all right is doing with these texts certainly confirms that idea. So unless we put a lot of effort into actively pushing back against it, I think that what they're doing could really endanger the study of classics in the future. And I think classics is just a very um, hierarchical field. You have to acquire so much knowledge to enter into it, that it can be really difficult, I think, at times for classics to change quickly. I'm really lucky because I teach a cross-listed course in Black World Studies and Classics. And, you know, I think a lot of the ways that I think about the classical world comes from students who haven't been trained by the field of classics to only ask certain types of questions. Um, I was teaching the Trojan War myth, and we just started talking about this Ethiopian warrior Memnon. And uh, this fabulous student in my class said, well, what in the world is Memnon doing? Why is he fighting there? And I thought, you know, that's the story I really want to know. Um, why does this Ethiopian warrior come to Troy? And I'd never thought about it. And so I think that's a lot of what classics really has to do. It, it just, it's not very flexible. It's not very good at retooling itself quickly. And so for a little bit of context, when did the field of classics arise? I would say it really gets going as a professional practice in the uh, late 18th and then throughout the 19th century. Which is not coincidentally, probably, the same period in which national identities are, as we think of them in the contemporary world, are being formed and kind of the foundations for the modern forms of 
stratifying of the human species into different categories are being laid by various intellectual movements? Certainly scientific racism is arising at the same time. Martin, Ber Martin Bernal and Black Athena tried to kind of connect the origins of classics both to ideas of romanticism and then also to the changing ideas about race itself. And as Curtis is saying, it's increasing connectedness throughout the 19th century to ideas of human biology and, you know, quote unquote science. Just like with all the alt-right studies of, of history, I mean, even that account could be told in different ways. You know, my reaction when you asked when did classical scholarship start? Well, I mean, back into the fifth century <laughs> BCE or or even er even earlier. But I mean, I bring that up because, you know, I mentioned this myth and, and Denise referred to it too, the return of the children of Heracles. I mean, there was a study of myth in antiquity. And, and there's a recent book out by this guy, Lee Patterson, about kinship and myth. And one of the points he's making is the way that the study of myth in antiquity was connected to the project often of making connections between disparate groups of people and creating politically expedient but necessary connections between people. And of course, it was also used to oppress and to separate people, but it doesn't have to be used in the way that the scholars of the 19th century used it. They were a product of their time. And so, I mean, there is an opportunity to articulate different ways of using antiquity. I'm curious to know about the relationship between the rise of classics and these ways of thinking of modern civilization and democracy and the emergence of nations and nationalism in the 18th and 19th centuries. I think it, you know, becomes classics becomes a sort of goes back to what Curtis is saying, a form of storytelling about where people come from. And I think classics becomes enmeshed in a number of different stories about nation um, and particular kinds of nations to just look at the Roman side for a second. You know, you have texts like Tacitus's Germania that are um, extremely important in trying to pinpoint the idea of who the Germans are at a time when they are coming into status as a nation. And in fact, as Christopher Krebs at Stanford has shown, um, into the Nazi period, this text of Tacitus becomes so important for understanding the origin of the German character that there is a a desire by Nazis to even inquire the manuscripts of Tacitus um, as a kind of legitimacy. So I do think, especially in Europe, that people are situating themselves in and around the ancient world as nations are emerging and finding ways to tell stories about their own selfhood through classics. You know, the question you asked a little while ago, you know, whether it was right to call what the alt-right is doing history or not, to me is a kind of hard question to answer because I guess I feel like they are using the past in a very, very time-honored way of using the past, which is to support a political position. So in the, from that point of view, I do think what they're doing is is history, not in the sense that I think the discipline of history or even classical studies has traditionally thought of history. I think we tend to think of it more as like a search for truth. You know, going back as far as we can go back the past is used for these political ends. And in that sense, what they're doing is history. And it, it's more a contest of whose version of history is going to be put forward. And I think there's an opportunity for us as classical scholars to put forward a, a vision of history that doesn't take us backwards politically. Were there groups before the alt-right who were using classical history for their own goals? Always. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, 
the Nazis, right, are the the huge example there, um, and their sort of fascination with especially Sparta, but also the American South, uh, post Reconstruction, you know, sort of like the daughters of the American Revolution. There are heavy classical undertones that are used there as well. If you read the Federalist. Hamilton and uh, Madison are using antiquity all the time in trying to get the U.S. Constitution ratified. And their way of talking about classical Athens is a very, frankly, anti-democratic way of representing that as sort of mob rule in support of their version. It doesn't feel to me as toxic as what the Nazis did, but I, I do think there's a kind of tendentiousness to it, again, in support of a particular political mission. And I, you know, I think if you look at a place like France, you know, there's a lot of um, in early French history, an attempt to really understand, um, I can never say his name in French, but working um Caesar's rival in the Gallic Wars and, and using Caesar's Gallic Wars to build him up as a kind of proto-national hero. You know, the British have to do extraordinary backbends to try to figure out how they can situate themselves as the inheritors of Rome and not the Celts that were conquered by Rome. So I think there's all sorts of different ways that modern European nations in particular have had to situate themselves around the Greco-Roman past. There's some really interesting stuff that's done between the Irish and um, the English and how they use the classical past in sort of conflicting ways uh, just in that in that area of the world to try to figure out where they come from out of antiquity. So should we be weary of thinking of ancient Greece and Rome as the roots of Western civilization? And really, to whom does this history belong, if anyone? This history belongs to anybody and everybody, including to a certain extent, to the all right. I mean, that's that's something... I, I think that that's something that we absolutely have to sort of appreciate if we're going to move productively on. When I when I teach my classes, I think one of the things that's most interesting to students and they're really unprepared for is the degree to which the concepts that we think we somehow simplistically inherited from the Greeks, for example, were the subject of enormous debate and agonizing at the time. I mean, I taught a course in Greek tragedy uh, this semester, and Greek tragedy is entirely worried about democracy and what democracy is about and who suffers in democracy and who is gets advantaged. And I think when we act as if there's somehow this singular, positive, glorious inheritance, we really simplify the degree to which these cultures were you know, ardently and critically involved in debating these things. They were never simplistic topics at the time. And I think we really underestimate um, people's ability to grapple with that. Um, I think my students actually found it exhilarating to understand that it's not one dimensional, but that the Greeks themselves were already really interrogating these complicated ideas. I mean, freedom is a great one. <laughs> you know, we, the Greeks and many people think of, you know, coming out of the Persian Wars, how much the Athenians promoted ideas of freedom. And yet you have at the same time, Athens is a slave holding society. So how can we come to terms with that? What does the ancient world really tell us about ideas about race and misogyny and these things that the alt-right is, is using them so much for? You know, whereas they want us to see antiquity as providing the answers to those questions, that misogyny is a natural reflex of human biology, for example, or that they want to use antiquity to say that race 
exists as a meaningful category, for example. I think what the ancient world shows us or can show us, that misogyny, racism, those things are contingent, that they take many different forms in many different periods. They exist in one form in one period and in a different form in another period, that they have a history, that they change. Maybe they can even go away. Some aspects of them can go away. So to me, you know, antiquity is useful to sort of undermine the apparent naturalness or essential existence of those forms of hatred. What has been the alt-right's response to this pushback from many classical scholars? It's, it's run a spectrum from just sort of dismissing what classists are doing as politically correct bullshit or attempts to rewrite history for deeply ideologically motivated reasons, as though that's not exactly what they are doing. <laughs> it is. Um, and, and then, so that that's one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end, some classes have been experiencing, you know, more serious pushback in the form of harassment, occasionally violent harassment, Twitter harassment. So thinking about um, how scholars fit into all of this picture, what should scholars of these areas and in other areas like history do when they see uh, their fields being appropriated? Is there a responsibility that they have to make corrections to that or to respond in some way? I think our our popular culture is so infused with images of the Greeks and Romans that a lot of people think they know them. And so I think breaking through that can be very difficult. I think, you know, when you ask about response, you know, there are just simply people who don't believe that uh, we know the Greeks and Romans better than they do because they've seen 300 or, you know, so I think um, that can be, I think, a difficult thing to break through that, that a lot of people's knowledge of the Greeks and Romans just seems like common sense, seems like something they know. Um, so that to me is one of the biggest challenges is breaking through that and getting people excited about what they don't know. Because a lot of times too, when you start trying to fill in a bigger picture, then um, people start to get disappointed <laughs> because they actually prefer, you know, a, a one dimensional thing that they can take away. I don't necessarily think that anybody has a responsibility to engage in public scholarship. However, I do think that we all have a responsibility to support those mm. of our peers who do choose mm. to go in that direction. I mean, if if your if your personal choice is that you want to, you know, write a commentary on a text and never engage with an audience of readers outside of the discipline, then I think that that's a fine choice to make. The discipline needs people like that. But I do think that it's important to it's important to acknowledge and support the people who are doing this work because this work is very challenging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's often not rewarding in the sort of tenure and promotion sense. Mm -hmm. So, No, I mean, Donna said it very well. Uh, and I'll, I'll just mention that, yeah, the person who chooses just, just quote unquote, to write a commentary, actually that scholarship is something I'm going to use on my site <laughs> trying to you know, correct or put forward a politically progressive vision of antiquity. So I depend totally on the people doing that kind of disciplinary, discipline-specific work. I agree with Donna that, that we don't have a responsibility to do uh, public scholarship, but I hope everyone 
will recognize that if there aren't people doing public-facing work, then our material has the risk of being picked up by the alt-right or any form of non-specialist who's working from a inexpert, possibly outdated, possibly politically regressive position. But you know, I, I guess I wish people would consider whether that's good for their disciplines to kind of leave the, leave the public-facing realm in the hands of people outside the discipline. Or the material is just available for anyone who wants to do anything they want with it. Just quickly to kind of add on to um, Curtis and Donna and just speak about where we are now, because I'm a bit older <laughs> than Curtis and Donna. And I remember when Black Athena, I was a graduate student when Black Athena was really gaining traction. And in my opinion, classics missed an enormous opportunity to engage with people outside the discipline. And in fact, um, a lot of senior people in that field, I think, decided pointedly not to do that. Um, and this is a very different environment to me. And and a lot of it is really due to people like Donna and Curtis. I mean, I think there, it, there's a more critical mass, I think, of classicists who understand that the survival of our field is at stake. We can't simply turn away from uh, these deep, deep questions about who we are and what we do. Would you be able to explain just briefly what Black Athena is? Black Athena was a project, it's a series of volumes written by Martin Bernal, um, a specialist actually in China, who decided that he was going to take on uh, kind of classics and um, really understanding of origin, which uh, is coming up again. But he basically set out to... Um, make the argument, and, and he had a number of different arguments. He argued that the ancient Greeks had a vision of their world, um, but that in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, classicists had sort of whitewashed what the Greeks themselves knew about their own world. And um, it posited instead what he called an Aryan model, which really sought to do some of the things that alt-right are currently doing, which is to project this idea of the Greeks as kind of self-standing and miraculous and the font of Western civilization. Uh, but in the end, when he wanted to uh, kind of dismantle the Aryan model, he suggested what he called his revised ancient model. And so it was a lot to take on board because there were really three models that he was talking about. And there was all sorts of disagreement um, on all three fronts. Some people didn't like his reconstruction of the ancient model. Um, some people didn't like the model that he himself proposed. But I think classicists themselves really were most unwilling to, in my opinion, most shamefully unwilling to really um, grapple with what he had shown with the Aryan model. And many classicists became extremely hostile to the idea that classics itself was founded on certain racist principles. And it was a, a really a, a kind of just an explosion in the field. And I think most people just turned away and didn't want to engage with it at all. But as a graduate student, I can attest that at that time, people outside classics were absolutely fascinated by this idea, by the connections that ancient Egypt in particular might have had to the ancient world. And Bernal became a real focal point for people outside of classics for trying to think about whether or not the Greeks weren't who we thought they were. And I think classicists missed a real opportunity um, to talk to people openly and honestly about that. Turning from scholarship then to teaching, are there things that up-and-coming scholars in the classics and people in history and in other fields can do to help correct or disrupt some of the assumptions about the ancient world? So, for example, by incorporating different types of geographies or emphasizing certain themes, or even as maybe not advertising it as the foundations of Western civilization and tradition and things on that order? 
think it's a real challenge because we, we teach a course, an introductory course called Greek Civilization in its Mediterranean context, which um, is really trying to balance certain things. Because on the one hand, we want to enable students to explore the things that they love about Greeks, you know, or they think that they love about Greeks. But we also try to unsettle a little bit about what they think they know. And it's, it's a difficult balancing act to love something the way they do from popular culture and to ask them to actually become more excited about its complexity. Um, you have to kind of tread carefully. But I, I have personally found students really willing to explore uh, what they don't know about the ancient Greeks and get really excited about that. When I started working on Pharos, Donna's article, How to Be a Good Classicist Under a Bad Emperor, was a, the you know total inspiration for that project. And one of the things she said we need to do in that is find better reasons to study classical antiquity than this idea of it being the foundation of everything good. And that is a really big challenge, not only because we're so used to saying that, but especially in the current landscape of higher ed where the humanities are you know, being forced to justify themselves in, in various ways, it's, it's hard to square that kind of cultural landscape with an approach that is willing to be very explicit and open about the politically unpalatable and kind of unattractive things about your own tradition. And so I think what classical scholars need to do, I'm trying to make a, you know, my own small contribution to that and I think there's a lot of interest in that in this more broadly, but what we need to be doing is taking up that challenge of finding ways to promote what we study that don't require expressing our disciplines superiority to other disciplines, the superiority of what we study to other things that are studied. And I think students can really attach to, you know, I think of Donna's work and, and some things that I've read recently that are looking at things like toxic masculinity. I mean, there's a lot of texts in uh, antiquity that will allow you to examine that. And although there's a lot of misogyny in uh, classical text, there's also a lot of texts that are very critically exploring ideas of masculinity and really trying to think about what makes a man a man. And I think students are extremely receptive to that. Um, certainly sexuality uh, has been really important for a lot of students, I would say. And, and so when we teach courses on gender and sexuality, they're able to understand or to look at um, ideas about sexuality that are different from ours. And, and I think there's a, a liberation in really opening these categories, sort of like Curtis was saying, up to greater interrogation, not just taking things for granted, um, not treating these ideas as natural, but seeing them played out in a, a very different society, I think is, is liberating for some of our students. And to go back to something Denise said earlier, I, I think what Denise said was, it's hard to make the ancient world into a model of multiculturalism. I think she said something like that. And and that's right. But there's a way of teaching that kind of embraces the diversity of the ancient world much more explicitly and gives more time to that rather than representing, say, the Greeks as one thing or the Romans as one thing or the ancient world as only the Greeks and Romans. Uh, you know, bringing in the, the other groups of people, the non-Athenian, non-Roman, say non-Spartan Greeks, uh, talking about the sexuality is it feels to me like one of the areas we've made the most progress in like in sort of representing the range of experiences and evidence for those experiences that w that we seem to have you know expanding the field expanding what we teach in the field expanding what we write about in the field in those areas is a way to 
produce a vision of antiquity that doesn't so easily fit these narratives that the alt-right is putting forward about it. So as we come to a close, we wanted to give you an opportunity to give any final thoughts. Um, I, you know, I, I think um, for myself, I, I, there's a lot of um, toxicity about dealing with these topics. And, um, you know, as Donna has spoken about very well, it can often come at um, really personal cost. But um, I have to say that what's kind of been transformative for me is talking to my students more openly about some of this. And I do, you know, I, students are complicated as a group of, of individuals, but I've been really inspired by students' willingness to go certain places in thinking about the ancient world. So it's that's been a remarkable kind of optimism next to some of this other stuff. And I do want to say I'm very lucky at Miami. I have an affiliation in Black World Studies. So a number of the courses that I teach are cross-listed. And that's just been absolutely huge in my intellectual and teaching development, to be able to face students who just come to the ancient world with completely different questions. So I guess my final comments that I would share is, is I do think there's also a uh, a real reward for doing this. And, and some of it is is the students and what they bring to this material. I've noticed in some of the responses I've gotten to my work uh, uh, an anxiety. This is on the part not of people resisting what we're doing at doingjusticetotheclassics.org, but just a just a kind of fear that if we talk too much about white supremacists using antiquity, it will make people not want to study antiquity. I guess I can't say for sure that that's wrong, but I, my instinct is what Denise is saying, is that a sort of more honest assessment of the history of our discipline and the way the material is used and the way it can be used i think that will excite a new generation of students who are who are who are hoping for that kind of honesty and and interested in learning about those kinds of histories and being critical of them and uh, so i don't think we need to be afraid to to talk about what you're talking about what we're talking about on the show today uh, in our classes and and in our field i think recognizing this threat to what we're doing and thinking about the best ways to either respond to it or just to represent our discipline in in better ways than the way they're representing us um, it can be a source of real intellectual energy and uh, excitement. That's certainly been my experience as well, that I, I'm told all the time that Eidolon could kill classics because we make it seem like <laughs> it's you know, it's all all negativity all the time. Like, that that what we publish are only reasons not to study classics. But my experience has been the opposite: that people are really excited about what we're doing and and seem to feel that there's new energy and mm. and new new and exciting reasons to come to these texts with different eyes. Well, we'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to our three guests, Drs. Denise Makowski, Donna Zuckerberg, and Curtis Dozier. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center, and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Venus Nelson. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website at origins.osu.edu. 
on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>